It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Imagine a world where our most critical instruments of democracy could be corrupted by hackers. Voting systems on the internet where malicious actors a world away could potentially manipulate them. There's growing concern over whether hackers could potentially change votes by physically attacking one of these computers. Well, for years, election officials have said our voting systems, used for things like the presidential elections in 2016 and 2012, and ostensibly for 2020, weren't even on the internet and thus unhackable. Meanwhile, we've all been focused on the information warfare emanating out of the Kremlin and what's going to happen two Novembers from now. I first would like to mention election security. This has been and will continue to be a top priority for the intelligence community. We assess that foreign actors will view the 2020 U.S. elections as an opportunity to advance their interests. But Motherboard contributor Kim Zetter broke the news that, actually, researchers found voting systems were online. And these included systems in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Florida, all well-known for being key swing states in presidential elections. I recently caught up with Kim to discuss her massive scoop. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. So Kim, you got a really massive scoop recently. Do you want to walk me through what you found? I worked with some researchers who had found, for years, I'll just sort of step back a second, for years, um, voting machine vendors and election officials have been telling the public, uh, particularly after the 2016 elections, that voting machines, and even more importantly, the back-end election management systems that program voting machines, are never connected to the internet. Have never been, are never connected to the internet. And researchers found that that's not the case. We already, we already knew that voting machines are modeming in, transmitting votes um, on election night. And so that modem transmission is an internet connection. And these researchers decided to try and see if they could find those um, systems online that are actually receiving the votes that are being transmitted. And they did. They found the, sir, the sir, oh, sorry, the firewalls, Cisco firewalls. They sort of developed a footprint for what these machines look like on the internet behind that firewall. And then they did searches and they found 35 systems in 10 states. So in essence, you found out that these, these voting machines are actually on the internet and susceptible to attack? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the holy grail of election integrity because the... Um, People who have been trying to get attention to this issue over and over again about the hackability of machines and everything, they are dismissed constantly because uh, they're told over and over again, well, the machines aren't connected to the Internet, so they're not hackable. And that's the reassurance that comes to voters as well before every election. We keep these machines off the Internet, so don't worry. So um, arriving to this point, finally, after two decades of them saying this and getting evidence that, yes, indeed they are, it was really significant and also a bit of an anticlimax because it turns out the voting machine vendors had been advertising this all along. When I start to look at contracts and the researchers found some schematics 
that the voting machine vendors had submitted with um, requests for proposals when they're getting contracts. It turns out it's right there in the in these contracts. It shows diagrams of these machines connected to the internet through a firewall. So remarkably, no one was talking about it before. And then, you know, uh, remarkably, while they have that in their literature, literature that they're literally giving to election officials, they're also telling election officials that systems aren't on the internet. Really remarkable. Why did they lie then? Why did they say there's no way that this is true? They're, in their mind, they're not lying. What they're, what they're saying is that it's sort of a, it's a, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that they, have, that they don't understand the technology. That's being very generous. But it allowed them to tell election officials that if it's behind a firewall, their interpretation is it's not directly accessible if you've got that firewall in front. And so therefore it's not on the internet. I mean, it's the wording that they use. If they had said, well, we have something in front of the system, it is on the internet, but we have something in front of the system that's protecting it, that's still problematic because how secure is that thing that you've got in front? How secure is that firewall? But it would have been more honest, right? Instead, they were saying, no, no, these systems aren't even allowed or permitted on the internet, and we would never put them on the internet, and they're not on the internet. And that's the thing that's very dishonest representation of what, what it is that they, I, I want to point out, these vendors are the ones installing the systems. So they're not, it's not like they're giving them to the election officials and they, they don't know what the election officials are doing. They install them on the internet for the counties. I mean, that said, the election officials have, I mean, they need to make sure that this stuff isn't, isn't happening. Because, I mean, look back at the 2016 election. I mean, a lot of the things that people said were hacking, was really disinformation. But this is a case where you have 35 devices on the internet, some of them in swing states, that, that actually can be meddled with. It sort of shifts our focus back three years, doesn't it? What really happened in 2016? We don't, you know, if we look, go back in, at 2016, everyone said there's no evidence that any votes were uh, manipulated, no evidence that any votes, any machines were hacked. We know that there's no way to know that because no one ever actually did a forensic examination. I'm not saying that, there, that the machines were hacked or manipulated or anything like that. But we were told a certain scenario in 2016, and we were told a certain scenario in 2017 and 18 and 19. The machines aren't connected to the internet. Now we understand that there was an entirely different scenario happening in the summer of 2016 when Russian hackers were getting into voter registration databases and trying to get into campaign offices and, and, and succeeding in some cases. These voting machines were on the internet and that changes everything now. I, I mean, I completely agree with you. And also just looking forward to 2020, I mean, how, I mean, we just found this out. You broke this news. I mean, maybe there's more. Maybe some of these machines were manipulated. You're right. I'm certainly not prepared either to say it happened because you just don't know because you don't have the evidence. Multiple senior government officials tell NBC News they are now confident Russian intelligence was behind the DNC hack, although they lack definitive proof. The incident is raising new questions about the security of our country's overall electoral system. Could voting booths or voting tallies themselves be vulnerable? 2020, I mean, I, at least this type of story makes me think, what is possible? The problem going forward in 2020, um, there's been no forensic examination of these machines. If something happened in all these years that they've been sitting there, um, we won't know because no one is looking at them. So it's not just taking the machines off the internet now and saying, okay, now we're good. 
um, we don't know what's already on the machines, and that's the problem. And, and no one is looking. No one seems to care to look. So we can say, okay, we caught the problem, right? Um, machines are now, the researchers are seeing them coming down after the story published. Um, but that doesn't tell us what damage was already done, if, if any damage was done. And so going into 2020, we're still in the same situation we were in 2016, where we really don't have a clear view of what the what state of vulnerability we really are at. These systems, you know, were they remotely accessible by an attacker? And could they have, say, remotely affected them from thousands of miles away? Uh, potentially. It really depends, I mean, whether or not what, what kind of effect they had depends on what they did or what they might have done, but also what district this was. So we have different kinds of voting machines everywhere. And so if they got into a county's machines that's using optical scan machines, we've got a backup paper ballot, right? And so the problem there is that most jurisdictions don't do um, proper audits. So even if you have that paper back, it, they don't even actually even look at it. Um, or they do an audit, but it's an insufficient audit. So um, if someone has gotten into the machines, um, if someone gets into the machines in 2020, um, that's why paper ballots are so important. That's why audits, risk-limiting audits are so important. That's the only mechanism that we have, um, the, most, the only reasonable mechanism that we have right now, because we don't do forensics, um, to know if something went wrong. You know, but what, you're what you described there almost sounds like if they did get hacked or something was wrong, even if they have that, that fail-safe, they'd have to know that they got hacked and then do a review of it. If they didn't know they were, they wouldn't even do it, would they? Well, so that's the problem right now with the auditing laws. Um, there need to be mandatory audit laws. Um, there are some states now that have audit laws, but the, the audits are insufficient. So um, there's federal legislation to force uh, states to do risk-limiting audits. Um, take it out of the hands of, um, uh, you know, losing candidates, because that's usually what happens, right? Someone challenges an election. Um, take that out, depoliticize it, um, make it so that it's mandatory. Every election has this kind of audit. And that's the kind of thing that will catch an anomaly. Um, you, you don't wait for um, a problem, evidence of a problem to go look for evidence, right? Um, you just, you do this routinely, and then if something pops up, there you have some evidence for further investigation. Do you think that going forward there will be enough done by the U.S. government to secure these systems come 2020? Um, I think that, uh, no, we don't have enough time for 2020. I mean, one thing that was remarkable for me with the story this week is that DHS has been working with election officials since 2016, three years now. And it's taken them some time to get up to speed and get the trust of them. But for three years now, they've been telling us that these systems are getting better, that they're doing more work, that we're improving security and all that. And yet the most basic thing, the most basic problem that we have in elections would be um, a critical election system connected to the internet, and they didn't catch that. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So, no, we're not ready for 2020, I don't think. Do you think we should just go to the paper ballot completely across the board? I mean, is there anything we can do? 
This, it's not a problem having a software review the ballots. The problem is, is that you if you never look at the paper, you can't just trust the software. You have to have a backup. When you do banking, you get a receipt from the ATM, right? That's your backup. If you see your bank statement and it shows that you didn't put money in, but you've got the receipt saying that you did, that's your backup. Uh, that's why it's so important in elections that you have that backup. Not that the voter takes it away with, from, with them from the polling place, but that you have that backup and that you re require election officials to actually look at the backup. So do you think that this is probably a bigger threat than some kind of rogue, fake, MAGA disinformation Facebook account or group that's going out there and spreading disinformation to a targeted group? Or, I mean, the voting machines themselves? It's kind of an easier attack uh, because if you're doing disinformation, you don't know if it's actually influencing anyone, right? Um, people are <laughs> unpredictable. Did you really hack their mind? Um, with a voting machine, if you can do it, if you can get in, you know if you've hacked it. It's, it's pretty clear cut, black and white. Um, and there are years of, um, years of training in hacking, right? So um, skillful people who know how to do this, um, if they put their efforts at it, yes, would subvert an election easier, I think, possibly, than disinformation campaigns. I mean, really what this story does is it paints a really frightening picture for 2020. When, and this is already an election, a lot of people are, you know, the, the country is polarized to think that the actual systems we use are in trouble. I mean, this, there's no other story that can really underpin that more. I agree with you. I think that um, it's a shame that we don't really pay attention to this um, in off election years. It's only when we start to get a campaign and everyone is um, aware again, oh yeah, this is election season, that people take this seriously. Um, but it doesn't, ultimately it doesn't really matter. It matters that they are taking it seriously. Um, I like to say that I thank, I thank God for the Russians. There hasn't been a lot of squabbling. What we've simply said is the facts, uh, which are that uh, based on uniform intelligence assessments, the Russians were responsible for hacking the DNC. I've been covering the election stuff since 2003, 2004, and getting people to pay attention to it. It's, it's a, been a two-decade effort. Um, and all it took was the Russians pinging some voter registration databases, um, also hacking the DNC. I'm not, I'm not going to make light of any of this. Um, but doing that um, really um, put this issue on the table in a way that it hadn't before. Well, Kim, I'd say that, uh, you know, we merchants of chaos being journalists, and you're not going to get another story like this and freak me out. But chances are it'll happen again before 2020, I'm sure. Yeah, it probably will. <laughs> I wish it wouldn't. Actually, I mean, I, I, for the sake of my work, yeah, I mean, um, getting a story like this uh, is important. And it's, um, you know, it, it um, underpins why, why I do this, why I've spent two decades doing this to uncover something like this. Thanks for coming on. So we have Jason Kebler here, EIC of Motherboard, to talk a little about uh, the last week's roundup of cybersecurity news. So one story or one set of stories I want to kind of highlight because it's been amazing. And I know it's been she's been getting tons of respect in cybersecurity circles. But Caroline Haskins has been doing some great reporting on Ring. Tell me about it. Yeah, so Ring is Amazon's home security slash surveillance camera company. 
And over the last few months, we've been reporting a bunch of stories based on public records that Caroline has FOIA'd from local cities all over the country about Ring's partnerships with police. So we've learned all sorts of crazy things like uh, police can access Ring videos without a warrant. They can just like ask people and, um, you know, they can get footage from people's homes just by asking for it. Uh, They have been sort of encouraged by Amazon slash Ring to uh, post like crime alerts on this app called Neighbors that integrates with Ring. Uh, They have also done this really, I think, crazy thing where uh, they've used taxpayer money to subsidize the purchase of Ring cameras. So it's like Ring will offer a $100 discount to uh, consumers and then the city will literally sell them to the consumers uh, and Ring takes $50 off and the city is subsidizing the purchase of these private surveillance cameras that they are then using as a private surveillance network. Uh, They're also doing things like requiring the cities and police departments that work with Ring to run through like all the press release language before they send it out. They're requiring them to literally advertise these things. It's just like, it's a really creepy and sketchy thing that's happening. Yeah, these stories, they completely just made me think that Amazon is literally taking over (laughs) American cities. It's a shadow economy. Um, It's it's a shadow shadow, government. Shadow government, shadow (laughs) infrastructure, shadow economy. It's like uh, Amazon has done sting operations with police forces where they put like a GPS tracker in an Amazon box and then they... Uh, partner with people who own Ring devices to surveil surveil their porches and see if anyone steals them. So, I mean, I think we're still like sussing out what the end game is here, but it seems that Amazon is trying to protect its like package delivery service by putting a camera on the porch of every man, woman, and child's home in America. <laughs> Well, like every great American monopoly, it just becomes part of the government. And speaking of another American monopoly, or not maybe not a monopoly, gargantuan American tech company, we got a memo from Google last week. Want to tell me what it was about? Yeah, we have got two memos from Google in the last few weeks. Uh, One was written by a woman who said that the company was discriminating against her while she was pregnant. And she, it was titled, like, Why I'm Not Returning to Google After My Maternity Leave. And it was, like, maybe this 3,000-word memo that she sent to, you know, a few different internal listservs there, and it went viral. More than 10,000 people saw it before we published the article. I'm sure more people have seen it now just because a lot of people read that article. Um, And it's basically just saying, like, this is not a very good place to work as a woman, Um, you know, I ha- I got a lot of snide comments while I was pregnant. Um, you know, I was taken from a leadership and management role and was put into uh, a non-management role, even though I had, you know, perfect reviews and a staff that loved me and, and that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, that went viral within the company. And then last week, we published another memo written by a black employee, former employee at Google, who sort of detailed a little bit about why he left and he's, he called it the burden of being black at Google and mentioned just like the fact that, you know, his colleagues were willing to talk about current events and had all these really strong opinions on like politics and, uh, you know, wars and all these other things. But then when it came to issues like police brutality and 
you know, the death of Eric Gardner at the hands of, you know, the NYPD, no one said anything. Um, and then he sort of backs that up with just mentioning that, you know, his colleagues were making fun of immigrants and making fun of different accents and, and stuff like that. So um, it wasn't just that they weren't willing to speak up. It was also that there were, you know, some overt, there was some overt racism that he experienced as an employee at Google. Don't be evil, Google. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and let's talk about Apple and the iPhone. Yeah, let's hit all, let's hit all the big Let's round five, it up. Man. Let's round okay. it up. Let's round so it up. I can do the big five. If you want to do the big five, we can do it. So Apple. Apple uh, sued this company called Corellium, which is a, I believe it's an Australian company, but it may not be. This is Lorenzo's domain. I'm just his editor. Um, that basically creates virtualization software for iOS. So they're ripping the software from iPhones and recreating it uh, on you know, computers so that security researchers can probe it. And this is really helpful for people who want to try to hack and find iPhone zero days and other exploits. And Apple is suing that company for basically like copyright infringement. And this is a big deal because at Black Hat earlier this month, Apple announced that it was going to be giving out uh, sort of like security researcher dev phones um, to people who could then try to probe the iPhone and find zero days. And it also announced that it was greatly expanding its bug bounty program. So they were basically saying like, we're going to make it easier for researchers to try to probe the iPhone so they can find vulnerabilities. And then, you know, a week and a half later, they're suing one of the company that makes one of the most important tools that researchers use. Earlier this week, uh, it was discovered that uh, Apple made one like a hilarious fuck up, a really bad one, where they unpatched a vulnerability that they had previously patched. So they're on iOS 12.4 right now. And on iOS 12.3, they fixed a bunch of vulnerabilities that Google had found in the iPhone. And then in 12.4, they unpatched one of them on accident. And they still haven't fixed this. We're recording it, like, I don't know, three days after this has been discovered. Uh, it'll probably be fixed by the time this is out. But for the first time in years, someone has released a full jailbreak for an iPhone for free to the public. And this used to happen, like, all the time in the early 2000s because, uh, you know, people were finding bugs in the iPhone all the time. But now, because vulnerabilities in the iPhone are worth so much money, people are holding those very close to the chest because they're not going to like publish a vulnerability in the iPhone that they can sell for a million dollars to the NSA or whatever. So, um, yeah, this fuck up is so bad that like they, the security researchers like, well, they're going to fix it in a day anyway. Here's the jailbreak. Uh, you can now jailbreak your iPhone for the first time in years. It's crazy. Skype listening to phone calls? Skype was listening to phone calls for... Uh, the translation service, uh, contractors at Microsoft were listening to, like if you're using Skype to translate calls, uh, they were doing what Microsoft was calling machine learning, which is better known in the real world as people in a data center somewhere were underpaid and listening to it and making sure that the translations were correct. Uh, we also learned that they were doing this for Cortana. It's come out in recent um, recent months that Facebook has been doing this. Uh Google has been doing this. Uh, Microsoft has been doing this. So it's not a huge surprise, but we talked to some contractors who have uh, 
been listening to both Skype, Cortana, and finally today, we found out they were listening to Xbox voice commands too. So, not great. The great thing about this roundup, it's just a roundup of all the terrible things Silicon Valley companies are doing. Yeah, and then so, <laughs> uh, did we have Facebook? Facebook would be the last one, right? Facebook, just hit it, yeah. Yeah, so Facebook, uh, it was found that the Chinese government was putting... Uh, sort of like anti-Hong Kong propaganda on Facebook in the same way that uh, the Russian government did in the lead up to the 2016 election. Uh, Facebook seemingly caught it quickly and took it down. Uh, Twitter was actually allowing China to promote this stuff, which is crazy. Um, And Instagram announced a bug bounty for malicious third-party apps sometime this week. So that's uh, that's another story that we wrote. Small news, but we got to hit all the big companies. So there you go. And that has been The Roundup. This week's episode was edited and recorded by Brian Arnold, hosted and produced by me, Ben Maku, and you will hear from us next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.